Challenge on the Cusp, the podcast that analyzes the new forms of aggression facing liberal democracies and hears from the innovative people at the forefront of countering that aggression. I'm your host, Elizabeth Braw, and I also need Ruse's Modern Deterrence Project, which studies such hostile activities and what to do about them. If you've ever made a payment online, sorry, today is the day I'm going to remind you that online payments are another vulnerability of daily life. And I'm also going to remind you that you can find On The Cast wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And to learn more about Modern Deterrence, visit rusi.org slash moderndeterrence. Many thanks to Willis House Watson for making this podcast possible. Now, did I mention digital payments? When I woke up this morning, I checked my bank account, which I have a bad habit of doing, and I noticed the payments that I knew was accurate. But many of us have woken up and checked our various bank accounts only to discover payments that we were sure we hadn't made. Now imagine the potential for those who wish us ill to interfere with our payments, our online payments. And actually, we don't have to imagine. With me today is Dr. Marcus Jacobson, one of the world's absolute leading experts on digital payments and other digital fraud. Now, Marcus and I grew up in the same part of Sweden, but we first met in 2004 when I visited Park in Palo Alto. Now, Park is the Palo Alto Research Center, which is a legendary institution and is, in fact, the birthplace of many of the innovations that have made Silicon Valley what it is. Those of you who are not familiar with Park will be interested to know that it was created by Xerox. It was a division of Xerox, the, the photocopy giants which was visionary enough to innovate beyond photocopying. And it was so innovative that Park went on to become even more important than Xerox. Marcus, who is an expert on phishing, crimeware, mobile malware, and efficient cryptographic protocols, was Park's principal scientist. And he has, among other things, also been principal scientist at PayPal and a professor of computer science at Indiana University. And on top of that, he's a serial entrepreneur among his firms are the security startups Raven White and Fatskunk, which he sold to Qualcomm a few years ago. And he's also the author of, among other books, Fishing and Countermeasures and The Death of the Internet, which you'll be interested to know has also been translated into Chinese. Marcus's new book, Security, Privacy and User Interaction, will be published in September. And I should also mentioned that Marcus is inventor of more than 100 US patents and patent applications. So welcome to the podcast, Marcus. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. And I should uh, ask you to come along whenever I need a PR boost. Now, Marcus, virtually every aspect of life has moved online, especially in the past few months, and no disaster has happened. So uh, I'm curious, are digital attacks really worth worrying about, or are we, are we boring trouble? First of all, anybody who's fallen for uh, one of these attacks in the last few months wouldn't subscribe to the idea that no disaster has happened. Um, individuals and corporations are constantly at risk, and many people do fall for them. Much of it is about deception, whether the deception aims to cause funds transfer or to install malware. This is happening. It's not new in the, next, in the last six months, but it's something that has definitely increased. As people work from home, they have fewer cues about the correctness of requests. Uh, it is all what comes in their email or by SMS. And that is what they're judging when they're making decisions. And that's harder than 
you know, speaking with a colleague face to face and being in a meeting and being asked to do something. And so, yes, things have gone from bad to worse. And, and what does that mean? How, how extensive is this and, and specifically relating to, to online payments? Let me give a couple of examples of what I mean the problem is. Um, deception is at heart here. Um, there's something called business email compromise, which um, is one example of deception. On the enterprise side, it might materialize in the form of an email that looks like it comes from a colleague of yours, maybe your boss, asking you to do something. We're just about to close the deal and we need to wire the funds to the perform the transaction. Um, I need for you to take care of that. That is a typical enterprise-facing scam. And people want to do their job. They want to please their colleagues. They don't want to be the thing that makes things stop or troubled. So yeah, they, do they don't want to be the killjoy and say, well, I, are you sure? So they'd rather, they'd rather, as you say, be helpful. Exactly. And the same thing happens for consumers. Say that you've got somebody who's buying a home. Um, assume further that the realtor's email or computer has been compromised by a criminal who knows exactly who is buying a home and for what amount. And that criminal sends an email to the home buyer saying, this is the account to which you have to wire the funds for the escrow. This is happening. It's based on an insight into exactly the situation of the victim here. And that is what makes it so credible. These are two examples of attacks that, is, that are happening all the time and which are very hard to defend against. Um, unless there are technical countermeasures rolled out, there are some that are in existence, but they're not pervasive. And the reason they're hard is that they appeal to the logic and the context of the victim. Yeah. Now, these are two deception attacks related to funds transfer. I mentioned malware. There are lots of malware that performs encryption of your hard drive and then blackmails you, asking you for a certain amount of Bitcoin in order to decrypt. Malware does many other things. I mentioned infecting the computer of the realtor as one example. The goal here is almost always to perform a funds transfer of one kind or another. And, and a funds transfer, that, that the person may have been expecting anyway. So you say, realtor, well, you're expecting a, a, an email from your realtor if you're about to buy a house. Exactly. And sometimes it seems very credible. You wouldn't think that something is fishy if you initiate the transaction. But yeah. so what the criminals do is they put up fake web pages with, say, phone numbers to banks and to other financial institutions. And if they need to reach that financial institutions, and not all of them are easy to reach, um, like your bank might be, but typical online financial institutions aren't so easy to reach by phone call. That's just not how they operate. So when the consumer finds the phone number, they're very happy and they call it. And of course, whoever mans that phone is going to ask for personal information and then going to plunder your account. And it seems very credible because you are the person who initiated. You found them. Yeah. You called them. They told you what to do. How could you doubt it? And that's another attack that is happening increasingly. 
So it's it's not just uh, technical sophistication; it's it's deception as well, where they prey on our expectations of what is supposed to or what is about to happen and what is supposed to happen. And I was wondering, can you give any any more examples of, of this sort of deceptive behavior? What I've given examples of here are deceptive behavior aimed at the intentional intended victim. But that's not always the way it works. Let me explain simjacking. Simjacking is a way that criminals can reroute phone calls and SMSs placed to your phone. This happens to Twitter's Jack Dorsey not too long ago, among other people. But the reason it was so spectacular when it happened to him is that it happened in the context of a password reset of his Twitter account. So whoever did the simjacking and rerouted the SMS to their phone instead of his, they got the reset code. And then wow. they reset his account password, and then they were him. Now, they did not social engineer him. They did not deceive him. They deceived somebody at his phone company, calling the phone company saying that they're him and they have a new phone and they need to port the number to that phone. Yeah. Could that guy please help? So simjacking is an example of where the deception is not facing the victim, but somebody else. In fact, the example I gave to you with malware on the realtor computer is another example of this. Here, the victim isn't the party whose computer is infected. And these cases are the hardest to deal with because it doesn't matter how careful you as the intended victim are. It doesn't matter because you're not the one who's going to be tricked. It's somebody else. And uh, as, as you speak, uh, by the way, I think most of our listeners won't be familiar with simjacking, but we all should be. And, and as you spoke, I was thinking of the the national security implications of simjacking. So most leading politicians and decision makers have their official uh, smartphone, obviously, but they also have a personal smartphone, as, as we all should, because we shouldn't be placing or doing personal emailing on, on our work phones. But it's, it's a fluid uh, line between the two. And imagine if some sort of criminal were to, to simjack the personal phone belonging to uh, an important decision maker. I mean, this would not just be an inconvenience, it would really be a national security issue. It's true, but you know, simjacking can happen to any phone or any phone number. It doesn't have to be a personal device. But of course, the problem is made much worse by the fact that people have multiple devices. Some of them might be, might be managed by their employer and therefore more secure, whereas others are not. Yeah, it just speaks to the, to the necessity of cyber hygiene and, and actually, cyber hygiene is something that, I've been, that we've been told about now for years, even though I'm pretty sure that most people still haven't changed their router password at home, but, but we all know we should do it. And, and so I was wondering, considering that, that these threats and, and, and uh, attacks are not going away clearly, what, what can be done apart from telling people they should be more careful? Many of these things that should be done are not things that should be done to the people who's at risk, but rather their service providers. So in the case of simjacking defense, uh, it comes down to how our passwords reset. Now, we're all used to either answering personal questions like what street did you grow up on and so on, or to get a code that you enter. Now, both of these are vulnerable it's pretty easy to figure out what street somebody grew up on, especially if it's a high-profile person. And yeah. 
after all, stealing the SMS message is rather straightforward as well. It doesn't have to take SIM jacking. It, it could also be that you trick the person who receives it to forward it under some fra- false pretense. Now, it can be fixed by the service provider. In this case, the service provider that does the password reset. Imagine instead of sending a code to your phone, they send a hyperlink. So a clickable hyperlink. When you receive this message, what you're going to do is not to copy the code from your phone to your computer in order to perform the password reset. No, you're going to click on the hyperlink. And as you do, of course, the website that receives this request, and that's a unique URL that only you will be sent. As they receive this, they're going to check the cookies of the phone that they placed there before. They're going to look at the IP address. They're going to look at what is called a user agent. They're going to pretty much profile your phone as much they can, just like advertisers do, in order to figure out whether it's you or not. And if they say, this is you, well, you're done. Now you could reset your password on your phone, of course, because that is where you are. Now, if it's not you, if it's not your device, then you have to escalate. Then you have to go through something much more difficult in order to prove that it's really you. Now, this would help against SIM jacking because if my phone number has been hijacked by using a SIM jacking approach, somebody else is going to get this SMS with this hyperlink. Somebody else now can click on it, but they can click on it on their phone, not on mine. And their phone won't look like my phone, won't have the same cookies, it won't have the same user agent, And therefore, this is not going to be recognized. This also helps for social engineering, in which case, instead of a code, there is a URL. And if that is forwarded, then whoever clicks it would, of course, not have the right phone. So this is an example of it can be fixed. It can be fixed by the service provider that does the password reset. And quite honestly, most of the problems are like this. Somebody can fix it, but very rarely it's the intended victim. They are not in charge of this. That's good news and bad news, because if it weren't the intended victim, ordinary people like me, we would really (laughs) struggle to understand what it is we need to do, and it would seem all completely hopeless, and we would feel overwhelmed by what it was we needed to do in order to stay safe. But you're saying, uh, by giving an example here about Simja, it's actually not... The ordinary consumer, but their phone provider or, or internet provider or another service provider that is really the, sort of the weak link or, the, or the, the part where the improvement can be made. I don't want to encourage fatalistic behavior in which people say it doesn't matter what I do. It's, of course, important to be careful. But in order to make dramatic change here, it's not to ramp up the caution among consumers and end users. It is about changing technically changing how things work to make these kind of attacks futile. Now, Marcus, you were back in the 90s, you were one of the first people to specialize in internet security. And and I should have mentioned you gained your PhD from the University of California, San Diego in 1997. So uh, your career dates back to those years when really we were all just exuberant about the internet and, and nobody wanted to think about vulnerabilities. And you have obviously seen internet 
crime in its various forms changed since then. And now today we are very aware of it. And then, as, as you said, in some cases, uh, fatalistic. But how would you say aggressors on the Internet are changing uh, their strategies today as a result of maybe people having become more aware and, and, and phone providers and internet providers having become more aware and obviously uh, companies have been have become more aware as well. So think back 15 years, the most common type of abuse on the internet was mainstream phishing and what people call the Nigerian prince attacks. So the mainstream phishing was not credible at all at that time. You received an email from a bank that wasn't your bank saying that you got 48 hours to log in. Of course you would fall for it. It took a special kind of person or special kind of luck for the criminal to actually harvest any accounts there. And so they did it in bulk, hoping that some of them would fall for it. The same for attacks of the Nigerian prince kind. They aim for the most gullible. Now, that is not the situation today. The competence of the attackers, whether it's spelling, whether it's the logic, or whether it's the targeting, has gone up dramatically. As a result, it's not the most gullible that fall for this, but just anybody who happens to be in the way. And that's really sad. It means that no matter what a typical person does, it's just up to the luck, pretty much, whether they are... You know, are you focused enough to think about this? Are you too tired to make a good decision? Were you clicking just a little bit too fast because you were stressed out? These are the kind of things that could influence the situation in a most dramatic manner with this rather competent attacks now. And the reason they're competent is that enough money has flowed, enough insights have been gained. These are corporations. These are rather organized crime rings now. Whether they're in Africa, in Russia, in Southeast Asia, or embedded in the countries where the most victims are, they are competent. Many of them know very well what they're doing. Yes, they're copycats. Yes, they're people who are sloppy. But it's wrong to let down your guard thinking, I've seen one example of an attack that was pretty naive. I can handle this. Most of the good attacks most people won't see. That is, is quite frightening. Not quite frightening. It's very frightening. And, and it's an interesting trend you, you, you highlight there that we shouldn't think of, of internet predators as, as low-life criminals, but really as, as corporations that uh, operate in a strategic manner and then don't just sort of send out these mass emails, Nigerian Prince emails that we all think we're too smart to, to fall for. And, and we are too smart for, to fall for. But this really, uh, what you're describing, highlights a, a, a professionalization of, of internet aggression. And do we have any indication of how the money flows? Is that something where we can, where either we as consumers and more likely the institutions we deal with, where, where we could intervene so as to stop the money going to them, even though we, we may fall for the crime? So this is something that has also changed. Um, Thinking back 15 years and about the Nigerian prince attacks, people were asked to wire money to Nigeria. And of course, that, that very request by itself should make people aware that something is going on that they should not agree to. And that is something, of course, that the criminals have tried to change. There is a notion that is 
referred to as a mule. A mule is somebody who is in the victim's general location. So somebody in the same country as the victim who is collaborating with a criminal, whether they know it or not. Often these mules are from other kind of crimes. They, they, for example, they might be the victims of romance scams. They believe that they're helping their boyfriend or girlfriend with his or her business. Whereas in reality, they are just intermediary for trans transfers of money to the criminal. They receive money in their accounts, which is an account in your country that the bank has not flagged as being malicious because it's not high profile enough. And then they're asked by the real criminal to transfer the money out. They think that they're helping this person with a business that will allow them to be reunited. This is just one example, but it's an example in which you could see now you no longer have the clue of a Nigerian wire transfer. It's a wire transfer to a bank that you've heard about in your neighborhood, and that seems much less dodgy. This is used both for um, consumer-facing and enterprise-facing attacks. It means that there's a less suspicion for the person who's going to perform this transfer. As I said, just an example, but it's a trend towards this improved competence. The supply chain of internet fraud, in other words, where you've got uh, the low-level mules uh, and then uh, operators all the way up to, I assume, something like the equivalent of a CEO. Absolutely. Now, what is done is to try to figure out who these people are. And of course, if you can dissuade the mules from participating, that is great. Um, there are cases where the mules are located and law enforcement is going out to their homes and explaining to them. Not everybody wants to hear the truth, though, and some of them continue doing what they've been doing in the past. The more important one is to get the kingpin, though, and that's a long and difficult fight because they're often in other jurisdictions, and that makes it harder. But, you know, it can be done, and there have been really good successes in the last few years, and that can change matters. But then again, if one out of a hundred get nailed, that doesn't change things. It's just making the criminals that still are on the lamb feel like, well, I'll be more cautious or I won't make the same dumb mistake as this guy did. Yeah, how do we get the uh, critical mass to move to, to the right side of the border? To Well, how do we get them to, to uh, reject the life of crime and the lifelong challenge for police officers? But it is... Absolutely shocking to, to consider the increasingly corporate behavior of, of these criminals and how, how sophisticated they are. Now, um, one of the towns that Rusi focuses a lot on how hostile states exploit vulnerabilities in our societies. And, and uh, this is, I believe, an area that, that hostile states can exploit or are already exploiting. I was wondering if you can uh, share with us anything that you have noticed in, in that area where there may be intersections between plain criminals and, and, and uh, state behavior or interests? There are some examples. Um, I think by this time, it's not a disputed fact that um, there was Russian in interference in elections a few years ago. And much of that was state-sponsored. It was state-sponsored, at least in the way that the people who did this were left to their own devices. And often they had a side business, which was just to rip consumers and enterprises off. And that was forgiven. 
by the authorities. And, and the way that people know that this is happening is that crime is tracked, uh, whether it's financial crime of the kind that we've been talking about or uh, crime of a political kind or nation state attacks. And when they're tracked to the same server on the same IP address and so on, that's a really good indication that it's the same people behind two attacks. And that has happened in several instances related to uh, Russian political interference and business email compromise attacks in the past. So there have been signs that there has been this type of support, at the very least, or uh, forgiveness of criminals performing politically uh, motivated attacks. That makes it much harder. That makes extradition almost impossible. Uh, And why is that? Well, uh, you can't extradite somebody whose government says that you're fine. <laughs> that, that is true. And by the way, uh, listeners, you heard it first on, on the cusp, that the trail that leads from disinformation uh, campaigns that leads to, to Russia, uh, that same sort of, uh, point or, or anchor in Russia, uh, is also connected to uh, the sort of internet uh, attacks that we've just been discussing. So uh, these are not attacks that uh, take place in isolation. Of course, in some cases, they take place in isolation and are absolutely not connected to one another. But as as Marcus just pointed out or highlighted, uh, there are examples where they both lead to the same source. and, And that is really quite frightening. On that sobering note, Marcus, thank you very much for joining us. May I ask you, do you actually trust your own devices or do you, do you trust the internet? Or do you try to limit your, your activities on the internet based on, on, on really the, the very ugly information you deal with and you're an expert on? I would say I'm more paranoid, paranoid than most. I do use devices and I use the internet, but uh, whereas... Most people might send a fleeting thought in the direction of what could go wrong. That's what I make my living on. I I wake up thinking what could go wrong and how can I fix it? And so I often see it as intriguing and instructive when I see a type of attack that I haven't seen before. And commonly, actually, I look back on my records and I say, when did I predict that this would happen? You know, five years ago, I, I look at my note, I look at my notes and I say, yes, this is the kind of attack that I said five years ago would soon happen. So some of the books you mentioned at the early part, for example, they predicted politically motivated phishing. I think in 2008, I started doing work on that. Often when I see these attacks, I feel sad that they're happening. And at the same time, it's kind of sad to say, but a little bit of a rush that I was right. And of course, I don't wish to be right with these things. And I'm much happier when it doesn't turn out like that, but it often does. You could often identify likely trends years ahead, and you could tell people what to do to fix it. The problem is most organizations don't until it's too late. Because why fix a problem that isn't yet a problem? That's the normal attitude. It would be much better if organizations were quick to fix what hasn't yet shown to be a problem. 
ain't that the truth, a risk always seems extremely unlikely or a crisis always seems extremely unlikely until it happens. And then all of a sudden it's so overwhelming that it's hard to address. So since you have accurately predicted so many of the (laughs) problems we have experienced subsequently, may I ask what you're worried about today that may hit us in five years' time? Um, The amount of information that can be collected allows criminals to first find out whom to target and second, figure out how to target them. By collecting information from multiple sources, a very detailed picture can be collected about people. That will make it much more credible. I'm thinking often, what would it take for me to fall for an attack like this? And it all comes down to how credible is this? And that all means how much data about my context does the criminal have? And whereas I might be more paranoid than most, that just means that the threshold might be a little bit lower for the typical victim, for them to fall on it. So not so much data is needed. But that is the direction we're headed. More collection of data, more data that accidentally find its way into the criminal's hands and more use of that data. We are turning ourselves into bigger attack surfaces. Marcus Jacobson, thank you again very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Have you ever been simjacked? And if you haven't, would you know what to do in case you were simjacked? Tweet me your thoughts. My Twitter handle is Elizabeth Braw. Many thanks to our producer, Tom Ascott. We'll be back very soon with another episode and another guest who's doing pioneering work. See you on the cusp.